As Nathan has already pointed towards, we are working our way through 1 John. We're in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Oftentimes, we would pause uh, during this week on Palm Sunday and then, of course, Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday next week, and, and preach something specific to that. But because we have, in God's providence, landed on a large paragraph on God's love, uh, it seems very fitting and uh, is not out of the ordinary for us to just preach uh, right on through here as God has uh, expressed His love towards us in giving His Son. And so uh, we're going to continue on uh, this morning in First John chapter 4, and we will continue on uh, through chapter 5 in the, in the weeks to come uh, as we finish up. But uh, hope you've made your way there. Today marks the beginning of what is known as Jesus' Passion Week. And as a matter of fact, starting today and all around the world, Christians will celebrate this week in many different ways. And for some people around the world, they've already begun to celebrate in the weeks prior to this. But today marks uh, what we know as Palm Sunday, the Sunday that Jesus would offer himself to Israel as their long-awaited king and make his entrance into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on the east side. And as many of us know, Jews from all over the known world would have migrated to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It is that feast celebrating God's passing over of the houses of the Israelites because of the application of that sacrificial blood that they had put on their doorposts. And it's good for us to remember that there was no reason that God would pass over them other than that they were uh, obedient to applying the blood of that innocent lamb, and God passed over that judgment of death on them. And ultimately, that culminated in the people's immediate exodus from Egypt, uh, who had enslaved them, right, for 400 years. As such, at this feast, Jerusalem swelled with large crowds of Jews preparing for the festival and uh, making the events of the Passover even more exciting uh, all these years ago was news that this man named Jesus, he was like a Moses-type figure. He was a miracle worker, was staying just outside of town. Jesus had resurrected recently a man named Lazarus, and would, uh, uh, would the word excuse me, of this miracle would spread like a wildfire into Jerusalem. So there is all this excitement. It is Passover. It is something to be celebrated, to go and sit and have a meal with Yahweh. And now we have this one Jesus uh, who has come to the city, has healed a man, and the city was abuzz. The Apostle uh, John, uh, whom we have been studying, recorded these events in his gospel in John chapter 12, Verses 9 through 15, saying this, I've got it up on the screen for you. If you want to follow along, the large crowd of Jews then learned that he, that's Jesus, was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Notice here, though, but the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and they were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come, that is this day that we're celebrating now, uh, who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees 
and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna. We have just sung that song, and many of you know that it means help, I pray, or save, I pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So it was, beloved, that Jesus on this day, 1,989 years ago, I was alive in 1989, were you? Some of you weren't. Grateful for that. So it was, right? 1,989 years ago, Jesus offered himself as the long-awaited king of Israel. We know that by and large, he was celebrated by many on Palm Sunday, but as the narrative of Scripture uh, continues on and proclaims what starts as a celebration today ends in a crucifixion on Friday. What started as a nation in love and in passionate about seeing their future king ended in his murder. The people who are crying, save now, today, cry out, crucify him on Friday. But what we now know is that what mankind meant for evil, beloved, God intended for the good of mankind. We ended last week with verse 10 where the Spirit inspired John to say this. You can look there if you've opened to 1 John 4 and look at verse 10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, beloved, what man meant for evil by the murder of Jesus, God intended for good. The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ is a picture of God's perfected love. That love is both toward the world and what is to be seen between the lives of those who are in the church. And as I mentioned last week, John uses this word agape, and we are stuck in a short little series that I've titled Perfected Love. We could replace that word with the Greek word that is behind it, which is agape. And I mentioned last week that in this short uh, thought in paragraphs, these short few paragraphs, John uses this word 27 times. 27 times. Last week he used agape nine times in four verses, and today he will use it five in six. Once again, the apostle addresses the hearer of this letter with that intimate term, beloved. In the Greek, it is a form of agape, it's agapetas, and it is this idea, right, of John's dear love for his brethren. I often use that. I hope that you don't overhear it in a sermon, but I mean it to my, 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 my deepest core that I love you. When I sit in here, my wife and I are tearing up as we listen to you all sing, and we sing together corporately how great the Father's love for us, vast beyond all measure. Brings tears to my eyes. John is writing the church. I don't think it's some type of thing that he just says off the cuff. He is saying, beloved, agape tas, those whom I love and have given my life for, and certainly apostles would be and 
did do that, give up their lives to follow after Christ and take the message of the gospel to the world. Beloved then is pointing out that his audience also is Christian, and the tests of their faith are for the purpose of encouraging them. This encouragement is to be done in the context of the church, if you'll remember, which is split. We read back in chapter 2 that they went out from us because they were not of us, and no doubt that rocked the church, and if you think church splits are a new thing, well, maybe you can be encouraged by the idea that it was going on in the first century too, right? The devil is always at work, and he is always splitting, and John is saying, beloved, my friends, my Christian brothers, my Christian sisters, hang in there. I'm talking to you. John begins this thought by reminding real Christians of why they should choose to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says this, if God so loved us. If God so loved us. It's an interesting clause that immediately reminds our intellect, right, of that monumental verse in John chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, for God so loved the world. When we read or when we hear the word so in the context of John 3.16, right, we uh, usually equate so with the quantity of love, right? God loved the world so much. However, it is interesting here in, in our verse that we see John use the word so and, uh, and how he uses it in the placement of the sentence. It's very similar to 3.16, but uh, it does not speak to the quantity of love, but rather the method of love. Look at that there in your text. Notice John says, if God so loved us, is a reference. It's a reference back to verse 10 where he expressed how God chose to love us, saying, by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, beloved, what the Holy Spirit is revealing here is not how much God has loved us, but rather how he loved us. If God so loved us like that, by sending his son into the world then we should also, or we ought, to love one another. We ought to love one another. Notice again, we see that John, even as an apostle of Christ, has not graduated past this command given to him by Jesus to love one another. We have been pointing to this, and John, as you know, as we have gone through this letter, circles through these topics on love and love of the brethren and hate, just over and over and kind of ever increasingly deepens those topics. And once again, we see that if God loved us enough to die for us, to give his life for us, to sacrifice everything for us, even while we were his enemies and sinners, we ought to love the brethren. The brethren, not just the world, but the church like that. The expression ought to is, in the Greek New Testament, a present tense, it's active voice, it's indicative, and it communicates us to us that ought is not something that we get around to when we want to get around to it. Um, it is because of its tense right here, it is a continuous obligation. It is something that 
the believer, if the Spirit of God lives in them, they will be doing. It is a command, but we would never want to command somebody to love. Would that really be love? And that's where John is going to go next, right? It's by his Spirit in us that we are able to do these things. But the idea here is that ought means that we ought to be doing this in light of a church split, in light of people saying, I belong or don't belong. The idea is that we will know that we belong to God if we are loving the way God loved the world. We are loving his church. The idea here then is, since God loved his enemies who sinned against him by murdering him on the cross, we ought to love those who are on our team. Amen? We ought to love them continuously in an ongoing, present way that is committed. Beloved, will the church sin against those inside the church? I hope in your mind you already said, you bet it will. It will. It just happens, right? Sin is still in us. It is still being drug along in our bodies. We, uh, they are who, as Paul would say in Romans, who will save me from this body of death? Certainly. And that's the idea. The idea is that when the world looks on and they see the church and they see legitimate sin happen, legitimate things go wrong, right, uh, that the church would turn around and they would love like God loved the world and that would make the church this beacon of light, right? So that Jesus would even say, this is how you will know that you belong to me by your love, your willingness to forgive, your willingness to walk alongside when it does, it's undeserved. Beloved, the, somebody in this church, you stay long enough, somebody is going to do something, maybe even me, to you that breaks your heart and it's legitimate and it's sin. The idea is, is that we would love the way we have been loved. We would be committed. We would predetermine in our minds to, to move towards unity and strength, that we would forgive, that we would walk in forgiveness. Why? Because this great love that the Father had for us. Amen? Amen. Much too often, what we see is that the church We'll get angry. Things will happen on inside of the church, even though we should expect them to happen. When it does, uh, we often lose our understanding of love, don't we? When it becomes personal, it's easy when it's ethereal and it's on the outside. Not so easy when you have to practice it. Amen? Should get more of an amen than that. <laughs> so often, Matthew 18 is best known, right, for Jesus' discussion on what we call church discipline. Unfortunately, because the church often does not understand or practice perfect love like we see here in the text, they turn to these verses into, and they turn them into some kind of legalistic way of kicking someone out of the church. It's like this is some kind of great thing that we have accomplished. However, if we slow down and we look at the surrounding context of Matthew chapter 18 and understand that God is love and that he who was willing to forgive the wicked Ninevites, as we learned last week with Jonah, he offered his son to the wicked world as a forgiving God. Just as Jonah understood, we must do the same. We must understand and forgive and understand God's forgiveness. The church, rather than kicking somebody out, ought to be restoring the sinner to God. That is the heartbeat of church discipline. That is uh, the intention of it, that you and I would love like God had loved us. 
And the issue as you go through the process of church discipline and pointing somebody's sin to them, it's calling them. It's, brother, repent, sister, repent. And then if that doesn't work, let's grab two people. We see the sin in your life. Why won't you repent? And, and as the message of 1 John is, you, you can't remain in sin and think that you're okay and be a Christian. The idea is if there's ongoing, unrepentant sin in a person's life who proclaims to be a Christian, how can the Spirit of God live in them? So our heartbeat is not, let's get rid of you. It's to love them. How, how, you have misunderstood something. So it is then in Matthew 18, if we take a look at the context, verse 21, right after this church discipline process happens, Peter comes straight to him and says, the, uh, and the text says this, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? This is be I love Peter. I'm just like Peter. Just put my foot in my mouth constantly. <laughs> it's like seven times, right? That's five and two. Like, should I just do it seven times? And we know Jesus' answer, right? He says, 70 times seven, Peter. And then Jesus went on to teach, right, this parable of a wicked servant who begged his master that's God in the parable, to forgive him his monumental debt. Do you remember the parable, right? It was so, uh, his debt was so grievous that the master said, well, I'm going to sell your husband and your wife and your kids to pay off this debt. And the man falls down on the ground and he begs his master, right? Forgive me, forgive me. And his master forgives him. God's love, how deep, how great, how wide. This is what Jonah said uh, in chapter 4 when he said, I knew that you were going to forgive these wicked Ninevites because of your loving kindness and your mercy. Matthew 18, verse 32, 33, and 33 records God's response to this wicked slave who had been forgiven but then went on to not forgive a servant of his, saying this, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Beloved, loving and forgiving is simple stuff and concept, but it is not easy in practice. When we have been wronged by another in the church, it hurts. It puts the concept to test, and the test bears its results right in our lives. When we meet those who claim they are Christians and they, uh, uh, and they were wounded by or they left or they had no commitment to the local church, we can know that they are either deceived, is what the text is revealing to us here, uh, and are unbelievers, or they have been so hardened to the Spirit of God and the Word of God that they are unrecognizable as Christians. And I know, I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in people's lives, and I have been tempted myself to leave the church because of difficult situations that have gone on, and there was even a period of time where we did, but God did not leave us there, amen? He brought us back. But when we see somebody and we run into people all the time, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. There's something wrong. There's a deception there. There should be a love for God's people that draws us back, Amen? So when we recognize their condition, we need to share once again that kind of perfected love that God had for the world and expects of us. We uh, have received it in Christ, and we are expected, of course, to give it in return. Beloved, it is 
the presence of ongoing forgiveness and love between the saints that makes an invisible God visible to the world. It makes an invisible God invisible to the world. This is John's point as he continues on in verse 12 and says this, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This if we and then God abides is constructed in such a way that we can know that we can choose to not love one another. And in doing so, God's visible presence will not abide in us. If we're not loving one another, that visible presence is not abiding. It is not staying. It is not visible. John's point is that God is this invisible God. We worship an invisible God. (laughs) And we're trying to draw people to love this invisible God, right? And the idea here is that if we don't love one another well, like God loved the world, then how will the world see this invisible God? So this if-then God abides is constructed in such a way that we can know that we can choose not to. And it does not mean here that we can lose our salvation. Rather, when the church forgives in the same fashion that God forgave, that invisible God becomes visible to the world. Therefore, becoming, right, a picture of God's perfect love in Christ. The world that we see or the word, excuse me, that we see translated as perfect can be translated as complete. It can be translated as mature. In some of your texts, it's likely translated complete. John has been describing God's love as being perfected, completed, mature in Christ. And so by offering Jesus on Palm Sunday, this is a culminating event in the life of, of how God is loving the world and God is proving he is complete and he is mature and he has perfected love for the world. And you and I, having the example of Christ, must do the same by laying down our lives for the brethren. You and I fall out of that perfected love for one another than we can. John knows that we are going to. He understood this all throughout the text. He is using this plural, uh, this plural pronoun we, to include himself into the brethren. And he says this in 1 John 1, 9, if we fall out, right, we're going to fall out. It'd be great if our love was perfected. It would be great if we never fell out of it. But when we do, 1 John 1, 9, if we, there's John in the mix, right? If we will confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I certainly don't know everybody who is in here. We have visitors every week. I myself have to return to this verse sometimes daily to confess my sins, to recognize where I have fallen short, and then I can celebrate like we are today, right? Singing Hosanna, right? Looking forward to this great salvation that is coming, being tired of the sin that ever exists. But you can turn. You can confess your sin. And he is faithful and righteous. Maybe you've wandered. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian for a long time. Maybe you're just struggling. You can rip the hardness off your heart by confessing your sin and returning unto God. So, beloved, it is, first, we can know that God abides in us if we have perfected love for those in the church. Second, we can know that God abides in us by his presence within us. 
The two truths are two sides of the same coin. If God's Spirit is in us, then we will love the brethren like Christ loved the world, and we will give ourselves to each other. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. This is how we know. We've seen John use this before. Uh, God's individual gift at salvation for each believer is the gift of His Holy Spirit indwelling us. It is something that is no, nothing short of miraculous. And if you're in here this morning and you have been born again and you have truly placed your faith in Christ because of the sin that existed and you understood that God was going to judge you for that sin and you cried out for mercy like those Ninevites, God not only saved you, but he gave you a down payment, Ephesians 1 is going to say, of his spirit. It is a miracle. And sometimes the world looks from the outside, and, and I certainly think that most of my family are, are not uh, believers. When they saw what happened to me back in my mid-20s, they, they say something like, well, he got religion. <laughs> and some people do just give religion. They just decide, I need a better kind of lifestyle. But for me, it was not that. I went from death to life. I went from desiring to sin to, to not desiring to sin. Or if I did desire to sin, I hated the fact that I did desire it. As the Spirit of God was miraculously changing my wife and I's lives and we were turning from, from the things that, used to, that we used to celebrate, there's no getting around that. God gives His Spirit to those whom He loves and it is an internal witness to us that we have been born again. Nobody can see that. It is invisible. And what our hope is is that that plays out and we love God's church and we love people around us and we share the good news of salvation with people. Why? Because there has been a miraculous change in our hearts and we understand. And I don't, I, listen, I don't know how it was for you, but I remember how it was for me. I just had to tell everybody that I knew, especially my family. And my family, they looked at me like I had lost my mind. Like, and in my mind, because I had no discipleship, no understanding, I was a brand new Christian, I'm like, why would you not believe this? I didn't understand the Spirit of God had come to indwell my life. My life had changed. It was real. We know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Friends, God's individual gift for each believer is to have the Spirit and to know that God abides in Him. There's much confusion about the gift of the Holy Spirit today, and we certainly are not going to clear it all up in the next minute, but we know this, that the Bible teaches that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given one time in a believer's life at their regeneration. We know that the Scripture teaches that the Christian is sealed by the Holy Spirit, that we can give or grieve the Holy Spirit in that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives causes a person to experience new or regenerated life. The Spirit-filled Christian can ignore, right? We can ignore the Holy Spirit and live a carnal Christian life bearing no fruit and having little to no assurance of our salvation. Why? Because we're not responding to the Spirit of God and, and Him convicting us of sin. And so we, just like a callous, we begin to callous our hearts and we walk and, and God is not going to dishonor His, His Spirit. He's not going to take it away from you, but you will certainly lose that sense of walking with God when we choose to sin. I 
a Spirit-filled Christian can yield to or walk in the Holy Spirit. And when we do, we reap the fruits of the Spirit like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and long-suffering and self-control from Galatians 5 there. And an additional fruit of the Holy Spirit, as we have seen in John's text here uh, and in the person's life, is that they will have a perfected love for the members of the church. They will have a perfected love for the members of the church. John continues here and says in verse 14, We have seen. We have seen. It's interesting when you go back up to verse 12, it's no one has seen. And the proof is in the love that we have for one another. But we see here now John comes back to it and he says, we have seen, right? This reference to the apostles that had witnessed the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. They were there as Jesus is coming down uh, from the Mount of Olives on this donkey and they're listening to the crowd saying, Hosanna, save now, Lord. They had seen it. They had witnessed it and they watched him die and they watched him be put into that grave and they watched him be resurrected. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 14, that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Friends, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on that donkey, the crowds were shouting, save now, I pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because of the crowd's proclamation and Luke, Luke records in chapter 19, verse 39 and 42, uh, what the Pharisees were saying uh, to Jesus at this time. And maybe you can imagine this scene, right? That there's now millions of people and they're packed around. If you've looked into a little bit of the history of, of where the tabernacle used to be in Shiloh, you'll know that it's kind of set down in a valley and these ridges run around it. And all the people, the millions of people would show up and they would always sit in view of where the temple was. They couldn't get down to the Temple Mount, so they sat in view, and the idea of the Passover was that you were having a meal in the presence of God, much like our uh, do this in remembrance of me, right, in this presence of God. And so uh, you'll know now that as we look at Jerusalem, that the temple is set up, and just off to its east is this large ridge uh, that we call the Mount of Olives. And so there are people packed in all around so as they're looking down on the Temple Mount, they're having this meal, and there are millions of people who have packed in, and they are yelling, Hosanna. I can't imagine what the scene must have looked like, right? Taking their coats off and throwing them on the ground and grabbing palm leaves, and, and Christ is coming in and is being celebrated as this king. And it says this in Luke 19, 39 through 42, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I take that as literal. I don't think it's figurative. God himself would have caused the stones to grow a mouth and cry out to celebrate the coming of the king. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, what day? the day the Father had sent the Son to be the Savior. In Psalm 118 that we started our service with this morning, we saw there towards the end, this is the day the Lord has made. This day 
where he rides in to offer himself as the king. But even you, he says, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Friends, with Jesus' resurrection came his crucifixion, and with his crucifixion came the sign of Jonah the prophet, his resurrection. And with Jesus' resurrection came unlimited atonement, making Jesus the Savior of the world. Back to John. The Apostle Paul, while teaching the church at Rome, contrasted that which Adam's sin had ushered in. That is the death to the human race. With Jesus' resurrection from the dead, saying this in Romans 5.18. He contrasts it and says, verse 18, So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's disobedience, there resulted condemnation to all men. That is what? Sin and death. What came in when Adam died to all men? Sin and death came in. Now comes the contrast. There resulted that uh, condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, this is Jesus' obedience to die for the unrighteous. There resulted justification of life to all men. Friends, Jesus, like all other faithful Jews, came to the city to celebrate Passover, that remembrance of God the Father accepting the blood of that innocent lamb, as deliverance from his coming judgment. Jesus, all those years ago, he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and the city cried out effectively, selecting the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And Jesus, in his obedience, offered himself as the Passover Lamb, and John says of him in our text that he is the Savior of the world. Friends, if you don't have perfected love, For the church, and there is no fruit of God's Spirit that is love, joy, peace, patience, self control in your life. It is like that the Holy Spirit is not indwelling your life. And you will not be passed over when God judges all humanity for their sin. You will not be passed over. Jesus came to make an offer, the offer of his life, his life for yours. And I want to encourage you today that if you have not made that exchange, if you have not cried out for God's mercy, understand that this is what this day is about. Don't recognize and see Jesus riding into the city and celebrate only to be a few days later yelling, crucify him. Accept him as that payment for you. The Bible says God will give you his spirit and you will be passed over on that judgment day. John continues on in our text saying in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. One commentator noted that confession is not claiming something uh, is true, but admitting it to be true. Let me say that again because it took just a second for it to settle in for me. Confession is not claiming something is true, but admitting it to be true. It is something of which someone is convinced to be true. So it's good to remember, right, that it's not me saying something out loud that is the saving act. That would be me saving myself by doing something, right? God has saved because of our faith and his grace. Not something that comes out of our mouth, but 
Confession does become a point of testing in a Christian's life. It has a public nature to it. So if we know someone who will not claim Jesus as Lord or the Son of God, that is a reference, right, to deity, they are likely not a Christian. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus' atonement is unlimited. It's able to save every human being on this planet. It was sufficient to do so. But it will not do so unless there is a belief and a confession. And Jesus is saying here that, that if you confess, if it makes its way out of your mouth, if your life becomes public, that you're a follower of the Son of God, then we can know that you are saved. So much of this is the imagery of baptism. It's the idea of baptism, and it's why we do it publicly, is we give a person an opportunity to stand in front of the church and sit there and say that I believe that Jesus has died for my sin and rose again, that I might have a promise, and we make this public confession, right? Why? An unbeliever is not going to do that. They're not going to come. They're not going to to identify themselves with the Son of God and His death and His burial and His resurrection. So there is an inward sign to the believer uh, of the new covenant taking place that is the Spirit of God, and there is an outward sign of confession to the body of Christ that I believe and to the world around that I believe in our baptism. The beloved confession is this willingness to have a public profession that Jesus is the Son of God. When we meet people who are unashamed to publicly confess Jesus as the Son of God, we can know, as John says here in the text, that God abides in him and he in God. Let's finish up here with John's confession. He finishes with it in his thought on God's perfected love with the first sentence of verse 16, making his own confession. Look at, that, look at it there. We, again, this is a reference to the apostles, have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. John says, we have come to know and have believed the love of God that God has for us. Prince Jesus, in his obedience to the Father, offered himself as that long-awaited king to Israel. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey from the Mount of Olives 1,989 years ago today in Zechariah 14. God's word states that when Jesus comes back, he will come back to the same spot that he ascended off of the Mount of Olives, and he will establish a kingdom. When he does so, the world will shake. As it now stands, though, Israel rejected his offer to be the king. But one day, as Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, and records the voice of the Lord saying, This to Israel, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. Listen, what's God going to do? He is going to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication on the house of David so that they will, now pay attention here, look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn. This future time, 
In God's kingdom, as he comes back and he sets himself up as the glorious king and he calls his nation Israel back to himself and it says that they will look upon the one that they have pierced and they will mourn that day. It is a glorious and a sad day that is to come, but the question for us is will we receive the perfected love of God that causes new life? And a love for God's people, or will we, like Israel, reject the king who is to come? That's our question. Beloved, what man meant for evil by the murder of Jesus, God intended for good. Jesus told Nicodemus that God loved the world like this. He gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him, whoever would not perish but have eternal life. Beloved, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is a picture of God's perfected love. That love has both been manifested to the world in Jesus Christ and is what is to be observed between the lives of those who love his saints. And it is perfected love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I am certainly ill-equipped to understand your love, but we can understand that you chose to send your Son into the world and die for the sins of the world, that if we cried out to you, you would save us, Lord. I pray, Lord, for all of us here who maybe have wandered away from the faith for a while, Lord, that you would draw us back, that we would confess our sin, as 1 John 1, 9 says. And then we would once again begin to walk in intimacy with you, Lord. I pray, Lord, for those here who have maybe never done so. Maybe they've spent a lifetime in church but have not recognized their sin and the due judgment that you are going to bring. Nor have they recognized, Lord, that you have sent your Son to the world to take their punishment, that they might receive the gift of grace that comes from you. Lord, I pray that you would do that work and all of our hearts this morning. We'll give you all the glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.